All right, y'all. This is the last sermon in Philippians. Unbelievable. 13, this is 14, so we're on sermon 14. Again, what will we be doing after this? We're going to have some Advent sermons. Uh, then during January when everybody's freezing, because I think that's usually the only time it gets cold here in Waco. Maybe into February, um, we'll figure out something to do, a mini-series in between then. But still, the leading horse in the race of what to do seems to be the book of Acts. So unless some of you come up to me and can convince me otherwise, we're probably going to be moving in that direction. Uh, now, this will be the first time in Redeemer's history, though, that I didn't go from one book in the Old Testament to another book in the New Testament. In other words, I'm not alternating. I'm actually going from New Testament to New Testament. Never done that. Have never done that. So it feels kind of weird. It feels like I'm, like, I don't know, cheating. I don't know what it feels like. So we're going to do Acts. And the reason why we're going to do Acts, I think right now, it's just kind of slowly developing. It's, it's looking at the church when it's born and what the church and how God worked through the church. I just think today we need encouragement that the church is the outpost for the kingdom of God. That that's what the church is. It's not a, a holy huddle. It's not a country club. Man, it's an outpost. And so maybe reclaiming some of the chutzpah, some of the gutsy grace of the church. It's so easy, I don't know. I don't mean, I know culturally, I know our young people are not hanging around the church. I know people are fleeing the church. And I wonder, I wonder if for some reason the church in one sense lacks gutsy grace. Like, who wants to be a part of something that doesn't really matter? Right? Uh, I don't want to be a part of a nice church. I don't even know what that means. I want to be a part of a moving, living outpost of the kingdom of God. Okay. So, last sermon. You know what we're going to do today? We're going to look at the the maybe most popular of all time verses in all of Scripture, 413. I can do all things, right, through Christ who strengthens me. That's our text today. So how are we going to begin? Here's how we're going to begin. Life is hard. Life comes at you, right? Life is hard. It comes at you. There's a lot of stuff that comes out of us and that we struggle with. But the other major struggle is the stuff that comes at us. Life is hard. It comes at you. Just this week, I have personally been in contact uh, with three deaths. Um, my brother told me of a horrific thing that he's dealing with, which is a uh, young mother who just took her own life in their church. Uh, Three families that have been hit by scary medical situations just this week. Life is hard. It comes at you. For some of you, school came at you this week. Or every week, right? You don't like it. The work, it's boring. The teachers, all they do is yell, right? 
Uh, other kids are mean. Uh, friends, the friends you have are fake or completely self-absorbed. You don't like it, right? For others of you, a bad marriage came at you this week. Little love. Little friendship. Lots of loneliness. For others of you, being invisible came at you this week. Does anybody even notice me? I mean, you struggle to understand why you're here. You can't find anything that you're really good at. You don't even believe God cares. Life is hard. It comes at you. Others of us, though, success came at you this week, right? And it's so encouraging. I mean, when success happens, it's like you feel so alive. Who doesn't feel alive? When you actually do things that you're good at and you're gifted at, and they work. Like, it happens. That's why I like cutting my grass. I cut it, and it works. I look at it, and I go, it worked. It's the only thing in my life this week that worked, right? But then simultaneously, when you have these senses of success, and you work hard, and you accomplish, and you do things, and it happens, it yields forth productivity, and it Actually, you produce something or create something at the same time, simultaneously, you feel this pull of pride. You feel this pinch of pressure to keep it going. I'm going to be honest with you. Can I tell you, sometimes, like, sometimes folks will come up to me and say, hey, that was a really good... You know, that sermon was great. And there are times that I will be driving home and have to fight back the thoughts of, you better do it next week. Have you felt that pressure? For some of you, financial security continues to come at you this week. You don't have anxiety about paying the bills. You don't worry about debt. You're going to be able to get everybody the Christmas gifts you need to get at them. But at the same time, you simultaneously, you will feel your thoughts. And your thoughts that you feel are like this. David said it when he was doing well as a king. I will not be moved. I'm in control. And you're like, you don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to deal with it, right? For some of you, relational blessings continue to come at you this week. You experience love this week. You have a boyfriend. You have a happy marriage. You have genuine friends. People at work actually respect you. People at church like you. Your children want to be around you. The grandkids keep coming. God feels so close to you. And then fear whispers in your ear, how long will it last? Life comes at you. It's hard. 
Life is hard. It comes at you. So what are you going to do? How do you live in this kind of a life? How do you live with things coming at you? How do you live with life that's hard and life that's good so that it doesn't turn hard? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Now I'm going to make a confession right off the bat. All right, so in verse 10, you're actually going to get, if you're looking at your old-fashioned handwritten words on a piece of paper, it's going to be the ESV. Then we're going to get to verse 11, 12, and 13, which are actually going to be literal translations that you're not going to find in the ESV. Just giving you a heads up. All right, here we go. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Four, literal translation. I have learned to be content in whatever situations I am in. I know, literal translation, what it is to be brought low, and I know what it is to abound. At all times and in all circumstances, I have learned the secret. Now, this is so funny. I mean, it, it is funny because everybody talks about secrets, right? Paul knows that. In that day, everybody talked about secrets because everybody was looking for the secret of life. Everybody was looking for the secret that would get you to do life, survive life, have a mission in life. He knew that. He's playing with them. I've learned a secret, too. <laughs> it's beautiful. Whether satisfied or hungry or abounding or in need, here it is. I can do all things in, through, by. Which one is it? Him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, Lord, thank you for the book of Philippians. Thank you for our time in Philippians. Thank you, Jesus, that you have shown up for us in Philippians. Thank you that your word is the wind that you ride on. Thank you that you shine on the page by the power of your spirit. And so we're asking for this last time that you would make uh, an exclamation point for us in the book of Philippians. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. All right, so life is hard. It comes at you. So jail came at Paul, right? Look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. So he has mega joy, right? Mega joy, greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. So Paul's in prison. Prisons in the ancient world didn't have cafeterias. The only way you survive in prison in the ancient world is if you have family or friends or somebody that brings you food. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. You were indeed concerned for me. In other words, you've always been concerned for me. But you had no opportunity. In other words, the Philippian church has been a poor church. It's always been a poor church. They've been a struggling church. They just didn't have any funds to send to him. And they were so concerned about Paul, but there's nothing they could do about it. They gave to the Jerusalem church because its extremity was so much, but they had given so generously out of their extremity, there was nothing left to give. Paul knew that. And he was actually almost like, please don't give to me. You've always concerned about me, but now they had an opportunity. Something happened we don't know about, and they gave. Amazing, right? So here's what we need to know. I want you to notice again that jail came to Paul, and Paul has joy in jail. Do you see that? And so we are ending the book of Philippians. It began with joy. It ends with joy. 
Philippians is a book about joy. And why is it a book about joy? Because the Bible knows you need it. If you are a car, joy is the gasoline. But life is hard. It comes at you. So today's text is about doing joy in jail. Or doing joy in whatever. So I actually titled this sermon, Whatever. It could be like, whatever, right? Whatever. But it's more like, whatever. See the difference? Okay. So joy in whatever. The Bible calls joy in whatever contentment. So look at verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned to be content. Joy in whatever is contentment. Today's text, y'all, has the power to give you joy in whatever. Today's text has the power to make you look at whatever in the face and have joy. Whatever. Joy in jail, whatever. Joy in school, whatever. Joy in a bad marriage, whatever. Joy with teachers yelling at you and being bored, whatever. Joy in loneliness, whatever. Joy in not being loved, whatever. Joy in success and productivity, whatever. Joy in financial security. Joy in financial insecurity. And the need to control them, both of them, whatever. Amazing text that we're going to look at. This text has the power to give you joy in whatever. So, whatever, whatever comes at you. But the question is how, right? I mean, that's the question of the text. Okay, but how? How do we have joy in whatever? And the first answer is not how you think. The first answer is not by stuffing your discontent. Isn't this amazing? Look at verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever situations I am in. What Paul is saying is amazing. He's saying, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. I've learned to have joy in whatever comes at me. So this means two things. It means, one, contentment is not natural. So it's not even natural to an apostle. Contentment is not found inside of you that you can say, oh, it's in me. It's here. Contentment has to be learned. Contentment has to be discovered. Contentment is not in you naturally, not even a holy man like Paul. Contentment has to be taught you. I have learned to be content. You know what the second thing that means? 
Discontentment comes first. The only way that you're going to learn to be content is if you actually face your discontent and feel your discontent and be discontent. So, are you discontent? Don't stuff it. Feel it. I learned to be content. This is why endurance is such a big deal in the Bible. Hate school? Don't stuff it. Feel it. I learn to be content. Struggling marriage, bad marriage. Don't stuff it. Feel it. I learn to be content. Struggling with success. You're doing so well and you're struggling with what you're feeling inside of you. Don't stuff it. Feel it. I learn to be content. Financial insecurity, financial security. Don't stuff it. Feel it. I learn to be content. This is amazing. This is so amazing because this is so cross-cultural and it's so not natural. Everything about us is instant contentment. And that's why we never get it because no one goes through the valley of discontent to learn how to be content. When we're in the valley of discontent, we medical it away. We do all kinds of things. We stuff it. Okay, whatever. I can do whatever. The question is how, not by stuffing your discontent. This is so radical. It was radical in the ancient world. It's radical in the modern world. The word content goes all the way back to Socrates. This is amazing. You know, sometimes when you do research, you do historical research, and you tap into some of the things, you're just like, oh, my word, why did you even put that on paper? That is, like, ridiculous. And then other times you hit a gold mine. This was an absolute gold mine for me. I just, when I was like, oh, my word, watch what Paul's doing. This is beautiful how beautiful the text is. The word content goes all the way back to Socrates. Socrates taught who? Plato. Plato taught who? Aristotle. Aristotle taught who? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great lived where? Philippi. Where is the church in Philippians? Philippi. Paul knows what he's doing. He intentionally picks this word content because it's in the long line of the Stoics and the Greeks and the Romans and really anyone that has a Older brother, traditional bent to them. The Norwegians. <laughs> right? That's my tribe. To be content in the ancient world, that word content literally means, get this, sufficient. Self-sufficient. That's why every scholar freaks out that Paul is using that word. Is he calling everybody to be self-sufficient? No, he's going to actually use their word and gut it and fill it in with something else. Amazing. Paul does it all the time in culture. He goes into their culture and he says, oh, my word, I see that y'all are so spiritual. You have a God for everything. And, oh, there's the unknown God. You know what? Let's talk about him. What a great way to deal with the culture. 
He'll just look around. He reads their stuff. He reads their philosopher. He doesn't. He was trained in them. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay, okay, okay. I'm like, that word, content. I'm going to take that word. And I'm going to fill it in with new meaning. Why? Because God creates things, not man. So here we go. To be content or to be sufficient or to be self-sufficient in the ancient life in the ancient world was the meaning of life. It was the only way you survived life. It was the only way to do life. You had to be sufficient. You had to be self-sufficient. And the only way you could do that with life being hard and things coming at you is you have to stuff it. You have to stuff your emotional life. You have to stuff your inner life. You have to pretend it's not hard. Or somehow, you have to draw sufficiency within yourself, strength within yourself to overcome the stuff that comes at you and the emotions that rage inside of you. You've got to thrash about in the sea of the world and look for some scrap of strength in you that you can hold on to so that you can survive. Stoicism traditionalism, humanism. So don't miss what Paul is saying. This is so beautiful. Paul, how do you become content? How do you become sufficient? Answer, by becoming discontent. By becoming insufficient. By learning to be content. Whatever. I can do whatever. The question is how. Not by stuffing your discontent, but facing it, feeling it. Be discontent. Whatever. I can do whatever. The question is how. Not like you think. First, not by stuffing your discontent. And the second answer is not by surrendering to your discontent. Look at verse 12. I know what it is to be brought low. I know what it is to abound. At all times, all circumstances, I've learned the secret. Whether satisfied, hungry, abounding, or in need. Paul covers the whole emotional spectrum. The moment he goes from low to high, he does what we always do. We do this in our staff. We do this at home. We do this with our kids. You do it. Hey, what's your high and low of the week? What's your high and low of the day? Paul is covering the highs and the lows, the whole emotional spectrum in that verse. But he's also covering everything that comes at you in this verse. He's just giving you a global way of saying, I know what you're going through. I know what comes at you. I know your emotional spectrum, whether it's low or whether it's high. Or the good things that come at you, what are his words there? Satisfied, abounding, or the bad things that come at you. You're hungry and you're in need. The good things, success, financial security, relational blessings, the bad things, bad marriage, hate school, feel invisible, lonely, not loved, no friends. And Paul says to you, that's not really Paul. God says to you, I know what comes at you. I know 
you say, Paul, you know nothing about me. You know nothing what I'm going through. You know nothing what I've been through. You know nothing how I feel. You know nothing what it's like. So I'm just going to let Paul tell you how he knows. You know one, like remember in chapter 3, he started listing all his successes? The dude was incredibly successful. I mean, if you put him into today's world, I mean, what would he be? I don't know. I mean, he could be tons of money, uh, incredibly successful, probably the most sought-after person. I don't know. I don't know what it would be. But when he lists his accomplishments in three, I mean, he was taught by the best and recognized by the best of being the brightest and the best of his generation. Remember Mike Tyson? Do you remember what Mike Tyson said? It's a great. If you haven't seen that documentary, it's phenomenal. I mean, he looks dead straight at the person that's interviewing him, and he says they were talking about, well, you know, you seem to be a little prideful or whatever, you know, and he just looks at him and goes, if you're the heavyweight champion of the world, the baddest blank on the planet, how does that not go to your head? Best line ever, right? So Paul, in chapter 3, says, I was all this. I am all this. I've been successful. So check covers that. But maybe those of us that have walked more in the valleys need to know if Paul really understands. Are they servants of Christ? This is incredible. I'm a better one. Wow. Okay. You know, we feel that, but we never say it out loud, Paul. I have far greater labors. I have, I have worked harder than any. They start listing all the prophets from Abraham, and he's saying, I work harder than any of them, and I've worked harder than any of them. Okay. Far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received at the hands of Jews 40 lashes minus one. So that's 39 because 40 was thought to kill you. How nice. They gave him one less. Three times a week I was beaten. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Shipwrecked. He survives three shipwrecks. A night and day I was adrift at sea. <laughs> Sharks bumping into him. It's incredible. On frequent journeys, that means the dude, like, did one more mile, one more mile, right? In dangers from rivers. I wonder what those were. Crocs? Hippos? Piranha? Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers, which was probably the worst in toil, in distress, in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger, in thirst, without food, in cold, exposed to the elements, and apart from all this, the worst part than all of this, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who has made the fall and I'm not indignant? 
Paul says to you and he says to me, I know what it's like. I know what it's like. And then he says, but I did not surrender to it. You see, in the culture and in the world, and in, in you and me, this is, there are only two ways that you and I will deal with a hard life. There are only two ways that we will deal with things that come at us. Some of us are going to stuff it in the tradition of the Stoics and the Vikings. Others of us are going to surrender to it. In the tradition, interesting of the belief system that came after the Stoics, the cynics, and the skeptics. You have two options only in this world, unless there's a third way. It's so fascinating that you can see that self-certainty always gives way to uncertainty, skepticism, cynicism. In other words, surrender to it. Self-reliance gives way to self-indulgence. Nihilism, right? Everything's meaningless. We give into it. We surrender into it. Modernism, again, modernism, the sense of stuff it gives way to postmodernism, surrender to it. Uh, religion, stuff it gives way to irreligion, surrender to it. Uh, the ancient world, stuff it gives way to the modern world, surrender to it. I mean, burn it all down, right? You have tradition, and it leads to burn it all down. We're in the burn it all down stage right now. First it was stuff it, now we're surrendering it. In the culture, and families, and individuals, first you stuff it, it doesn't work, so now you surrender to it. It doesn't work. You can't draw on your resources, so what else is there? You only have the power of what's coming at you, and because you can't find the resources in yourself, those things are so powerful, you escape and give up and surrender to them. And that's how the world works. That's how you work. That's how your family works. That's how your kids work. That's how we all work. Unless there's a third way. Paul is saying to everyone who's figured out that you don't have the resources, that stuffing it doesn't work because you can't control it, he says, don't surrender to it. Instead, learn the secret. And here's the secret, right? Some of you are thinking, though, before we get to the secret, it's too late for me, though, Jeff. That ship has sailed. Literally, I've been swept out to sea. I'm drowning. I just want you to look that this text throws you a life preserver. Phenomenal. If you think you're drowning, if you think it's too late for you, if you think you're out to sea, notice this text says, no, you're not. Here's the life preserver. Watch what it says. Verse 12. Can we put verse 12 up there? He says, I know at all times, you see all times and all circumstances, that all times and all circumstances means your time and your circumstance because it's all times and all circumstances. Is it too late for you? That's under the all times and all circumstances. Have you been swept out to sea? That means all times and all circumstances. Are you drowning? That's part of the all times and all circumstances. Amazing. Paul says, Here's your life preserver. At your all time and your all circumstances, there is a way out for you. There is a third way that has the power to reach you right now. What is it? Here we go. I can do all things. Let's go to verse 13. 
I can do all things in through by him who strengthens me. I put in through by him because those are all the translations that come from that verse. I'm going to argue from the original language that it's in, in, in. Why? Because the preposition in the Greek is en, which is in. It's not dia, which is through. And it's not by, it's in. Now, why does that matter? It matters this. Don't stuff it. Life is hard, it comes at you. Your emotions, it gels up within you. The first thing is don't stuff it. Don't, don't stuff your discontent. Don't try to stuff what's coming at you. Don't try to stuff what's coming at you. Face it. But don't surrender to it either. Don't surrender to whatever's coming at you. Don't surrender to the emotions and the overwhelming feelings that you have. Don't surrender to it. That's why the Bible talks over and over again about having a sober mind. It's to say, don't do that. Don't be swept away by it. Your catastrophic thinking, your worrying and anxious thinking, right? Don't. Don't stuff it. Don't surrender to it. Be strengthened in it. Don't stuff it. Don't surrender to it. Be strengthened in it. Philippians 4.13 is pretty famous for athletes. You'll have some heavyweight champion of the world, some UFC champion, fresh after knocking some dude out who's literally laying on the back with the camera and the dude being interviewed, and he looks in the camera and he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember so many times I would see that and I'd go, man, it's amazing. So to be the heavyweight champion or to be the UFC champion of the world, not only do I have to beat that dude, but I got to beat Jesus. What does that mean? Does it mean... Um, I can do algebra without studying? Does it mean I can get my girlfriend back? Does it mean I can be Superman? Does it mean I can be omnipotent? <laughs> what does this mean? First, it means you can do whatever comes at you. Because the whatever, I can do all things is all the things that come at you. That's the context. So you can do jail. You can do school. You can do boring. You can do loneliness. You could do being sinned against. You can do being disrespected. You can do being successful. You can do being financially secure. You can be and do financial insecurity. You can do all whatever comes at you. Amazing. Number two, it means you can do whatever comes at you in him. In him. It's Paul's favorite word. It's his favorite preposition. It's his favorite way to describe a Christian because he wants you to know that you are in him. Doctrinally, theologically, people have called this union with Christ. Okay, fantastic. What does that mean? When you're in him, it means that he has taken you and he has put you in 
him. And that means whatever is Jesus's belongs to you. It's yours. And it means whatever is yours is now his. So all the things you struggle with, his. All the things you want, yours. It means everything he ever did, and it means wherever he is at right now, it's yours. Now, we've looked at some of these things in the book of Philippians, but you've got to read the whole Bible to get the multiplicity of ideas and images, the incredible cuts on the wonder of the diamond of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. That if you just get a glimpse of what's yours, it gives you eternal life. If you just get a glimpse of what's yours, you are content for whatever. So once upon a time ago, I was in charge of our youngest. Now, this is in the BT days, the before Thai days. So our youngest at that time would be Belle. And she was four, and I was in charge of her. And in the course of my day, being in charge of her, probably a Saturday, I wanted to work out. So I have a four-year-old, and I want to work out. So I say, hey, honey, here. I went into the house, got all the toys that she likes. You know, these were those little dolls. Polly Pockets, oh my word. And does Polly have tons of pockets? Polly has purses, Polly has shoes, Polly has straps, Polly has self-thing dresses that you attach to Polly, and Polly has millions of friends. So did you have, Daddy, I need this, all right, I got, do I have all your Polly's? I get all the polys, I get all her pockets, and we go out into the garage, because that's where the gym is. And I clear out an area, and I set all the polys and all the pockets in that area of the gym, in the area of the garage, and I go, honey, honey, look at me. I'm going there. And I point. I'm going to work out, and you play with your poly pockets. And I go over, and I'm in my first rep, first set. I'm doing military presses. I'm sitting on a bench. I'm in my first set. I probably got to rep two, and I hear, Daddy. I mean, Daddy. I can't even do it. I, I, you can't even, how do you even describe something like that? And so I'm at rep two, and I hear the Daddy, and I look over, and I see Belle. And it is in the horror movie style, screaming, screaming my name, tears flowing down her face, tear all over her face, her face is white, and she's pointing at a wasp buzzing above her, right? And I'm looking at her in the middle, like I'm looking at her, and I go, honey, honey, look at daddy. Honey, look at daddy. She slowly pries her off, eyes off the wasp, you know, just pointing, pointing, screaming, Finally, she hears my voice. She turns and slowly looks at me. I go, okay, good. Now come here. 
come here, honey. You're okay. And she walks, and she stands right beside me. So I continued. <laughs> and in about eight, nine, ten reps, it's so quiet in here. It's so still in here. What is going on? And I turn and I look, and I see my little girl, my child, my child, looking at me, smiling, with a big old wasp buzzing over her head. Jesus is your strength. You see, in Christ is so much better than by through Christ because those things are saying he strengthens you. Okay, great. Sometimes that's great. That feels great. I like it. But when you really need it, you don't need him to strengthen you. You need him to be your strength. He is your strength for whatever.